0: Though touted as perhaps the best in the world, the American medical system is filled with hypocrisies. Our healthcare is staggeringly expensive, yet, one in six Americans has no health insurance. We have some of the, the most skilled physicians in the world, yet, 100,000 patients die each year from medical errors. Going beyond sick care requires informed and empowered patients. This is achievable through price transparency and unbiased quality care that meets both public and private health insurance regulations. This podcast aims to explore the intricacies of quality patient care through thought provoking conversations with providers, healthcare executives, corporate CEOs, technologists, and patients. We'll also seek to provide you with simplified actionable paths to feeling good and living well. Welcome to the Empowered Patient Podcast. Today's show is all about health disparities and chronic disease in Mississippi and we have a special guest with us today and we will be really discussing the impact of health disparities in the south specifically um, Mississippi how that evolved from the the inception itself the history of it and how has that evolved in modern day um, healthcare and we have with us Dr. Michael um, L. Jones and he has spent tremendous time in Mississippi um, caring um, for patients who need care, who, ne- who need access to health care. And usually those, those patients are oftentimes underserved. Um, so he's going to be sharing his perspective on increasing access to health care and really affecting change in Mississippi. So, doc, 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 welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, and thank you for having me.
0: Hey, I wanted to really get through a bit about your background so that our audience gets to know a little bit about who you are and um, and what you represent.
1: Okay, okay. Of course, I am Michael Jones. Um, I am a lifelong Mississippian. I've been in Mississippi all 43 years of my life. I've been a registered nurse for 20 years now. Uh, I'm a fairly new PhD in nursing, so I actually just defended my dissertation to become PhD on March 25th of 2020. Have an extreme passion for ensuring that the poor and underserved have adequate access to healthcare, thus addressing health disparities. I also have a keen interest in ensuring that individuals are properly educated around some of the issues of chronic disease. I, I am a firm believer, and and you know, research research has shown that when health literacy is not there, individuals suffer greater with chronic diseases. So as, as so saying that, I have an extreme interest, a keen interest. In addressing health disparities through the lens of addressing the social determinants of health and also uh, health literacy being one of those um, determinants that I think kind of drives um, whether an individual is going to be um, healthy or well. Um, as I stated, been a registered nurse for 20 years. I've worked in various capacities in healthcare, uh, specifically um, in healthcare administration and also healthcare education. Not only on the nursing side, but I've also taught. Um, actually, in uh, healthcare administration, I actually teach for Jackson State University now um, in their School of Public Health. So, uh, really enjoy um, educating minds because I think uh, we're, we're we're kind of in interesting times right now in healthcare with COVID-19. Uh, we're going to need individuals educated in public health to be able to make a difference um, in the communities, and you know, public health will never be the same. So, I'm just truly honored um, to have served. Um, in that capacity to educate the next public health officials that, that are going to be addressing um, all of the, the public health issues that we're facing in our country, um, such as COVID-19. So that's kind of a brief introduction of myself. And I again, uh, very honored to be here and look forward to, to the dialogue. So
2: he
0: has such quite an extensive background given from a patient care point of view and administrative point of view as well in the hospital settings and outpatient settings. So the And one of the key things you had mentioned was the fact that health promotion is a big component of who you are. So how do we educate, how do we use education to really affect change as it relates to chronic disease?
1: I think we have to meet people where they are. I am such a huge opponent of having canned educational materials that that we give to patients. I think that that we have to address um, health education through first assessing that individuals, individual's capacity to be able to process the information that we give them. You know, I think it it doesn't do us any good to provide health education materials that that person really can't understand those words. And as such, I think we have to kind of understand uh, where that person is, And look at that individual's health literacy and provide that health care education uh, or health promotional education in a way that that person can understand, process that information and put it into practice to best um, benefit themselves. For example, if that person is suffering from from diabetes, hypertension, how can we best put that in terms where that person can understand it? and then be able to translate it um, into their own everyday lives. I think health literacy is, is the best way to, to approach uh, health promotion around um, chronic illnesses, especially in a state like, uh, like Mississippi, where literacy rates are, you know, are, are fairly low as compared to other, other states in the union.
0: So you, you mentioned some really key points there that simplify the message to be able to reach yes. the target audience. Um, so in the terms of a, of a patient who might have diabetes, right? And their first steps are usually what? Um, they discover they have the pre-diabetes or they're diabetic. What are usually the first few steps they must take, right? Um, what, what are usually the recommendations that you see amongst yourself recommended to patients how to stay healthy, right? What's health promotion? What are they, what are the few first few steps?
1: I think, you know, if, we, if we look at diabetes, I think the first step is, is getting that person to accept the fact that they have that disease. I think that comes through healthcare professionals. You know, myself, I've been a registered nurse, and when you look at it in the full scheme of things, a lot of times we don't have a lot of time um, with that patient. You know, if we're in a clinic, we may have 15 minutes with that patient, then we send them back home. And a lot of times we send those individuals back into the environment that's making them sick. So I think we have to have time to, to allow that person the, the opportunity to process the fact that they have that condition. And then number two, I think we have to make very, very small steps. We need to do an assessment of what's going on in that person's home environment. Do they have access to fruits and vegetables? um does that individual understand the difference between a vegetable um, and a starch for example where i come from we eat butter beans peas corn things like that i was taught as a child that those foods are actually vegetables but in actuality they are starches so we have to under to, to ensure that individuals have an understanding of just basic things like that and and if there are things in that person's environment that we can assist them in modifying I think that is the the very first step. But I think uh, first getting that person to realize the magnitude of that disease that they have, and and help them to understand what they need to do to manage that disease. Because we as health as healthcare providers, we don't manage disease. We monitor that person's progress by them managing their own. And I don't think that we've done enough, you um, know, in a state like Mississippi and, and nationwide, to be frank about it, about how to to go about um, how to go about providing that, that educational piece to those individuals who are diagnosed with um, with chronic diseases. Now, we, we'll give them information and we just assume that they understand what we're talking about. And then too, I think we also have to, to take it a step further. How can we utilize uh, community health workers, community health advocates, how can we utilize a faith-based entity to provide that ongoing communication and education with that person when we can't just wait for that person to come into the doctor's office um, in March and then maybe their follow-up visit is in April and expect that person to to come back with their hemoglobin A1Cs or their blood sugars uh, within normal. We need to put some things in place while that person um, is at home so that there's an ongoing education, that ongoing assessment of that person's need, ongoing assessment of that person's uh, level of understanding and then be able to put some interventions in place before that individual actually comes back uh, to the doctor uh, for their follow-up visit, as an example.
0: Which, which makes a lot of sense. So it's really proact- proactively teaching and educating the individual, using community health workers to be able to execute what is passed down from a knowledge point of view and hold that patient accountable. So it's not, it's not just education, it's accountability. Uh, both, of, both of them walking hand in hand together to keep that patient super, super healthy. Right. Right. Um, so when we then, when we then look at the, the South, the South has had a history of really not individuals like myself that are in the South, not having access to mm-hmm. care. And they go back to really history. Um, and of course, Medicaid expansion, there has been a big issue. Um, so what are your thoughts around why hasn't the South, the South, 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 African Americans living in the South gained access to care that they deserve? Why has that been such a struggle?
1: Well, you know, first of all, I'd like to say, and I'd like to also recognize that we are. Um, in a very different place than we were before I was born in the 60s, 70s when segregation, you know, racism was at an all-time high. Yes, those issues still continue to this day. We still face racism um, in a state like Mississippi. I want to I first acknowledge that we have come a long way, but there is a long way that we have to go. But I think some of those issues still pers- persist in Mississippi because, you know, I mentioned those social determinants of health. Which are those things that, that kind of indic- they kind of dictate how 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 we were fair in life as it relates to our health. So there are a number of things that you have to consider. I think number one, when you have in a, a, a place like Mississippi where we're 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 at the bottom of the list, I think a lot of times uh, related to education. There's a direct correlation between the educational system and the overall health outcomes of of individuals. I think that's that's number one. Uh, number two. Is, is is geography. I think Mississippi, uh, not that I think, I know Mississippi is a, is a very large landmass. We have 2.9 million people peppered across a very large landmass. So gaining access to the, those very rural areas uh, of our state, Mississippi is largely rural, have one urban center um, in our state. So gaining access in those very rural areas becomes a challenge. Uh, number one, it is very hard to uh, recruit uh physicians um into those very large areas and then number two uh transportation uh, becomes an issue because if an individual has to travel 30, 40, 50 miles to the next doctor's office that becomes uh a major issue and it impacts the individual's ability to get good quality health care also we have food deserts um all over the place in mississippi You know there's individuals who have to drive an hour to get to the nearest grocery store have to drive 30 minutes to get to the nearest grocery store so if those individuals don't have access to not only health care but also have access to those things which um, helps to make them healthy that helps to that helps to kind of exacerbate uh, that issue of chronic illness that that we face um, here in Mississippi that we're at the top of the list in for example uh, hypertension um, Uh, We're usually at the top of the list with obesity, uh, diabetes, and then poverty um, is is another issue I think that has kind of persisted in Mississippi, and that also goes back to the educational system. You know, if you have a a community that's not properly educated, you're going to have more poverty. And research has shown that those individuals who live in extreme poverty usually have the worst worst health outcomes. You know, I could go down that list of those uh, social determinants and really apply it to uh, Mississippi, but for the sake of time, I'll just kind of focus on those main ones. I think education, uh, I think the issue of poverty has has helped to, uh, you know, prolong uh, that chronic disease state uh, in Mississippi, uh, the issue of transportation, um, geography, and also the ability inability, as I, as I forestated, to recruit uh, quality health care providers in some of the most rural areas um, of our state. And then, too, I wanted to also acknowledge um, that we do have a, a good health care system um, in our state, but it may not be enough. You know, we have a good system of community health centers, also known as federally qualified health centers, that are there um, for that purpose. And they do a magnificent job uh, when they're properly funded um, in some of those rural communities of, of Mississippi. But as I have stated, we, we, we still have a, a long way to go to get Mississippi to where it needs to be.
0: That's interesting. So you mentioned really some of the key components of the inequality to gain access to care by um, by us, and part of the big reason is you gotta have healthcare workers to want to live yes. in Mississippi. You have to have doctors that want to live in, in Mississippi. Um, so how yes. do you incentivize? How does the the state government incentivize? healthcare workers to move from a different state, say a neighboring state would be um, Alabama. Um, So say uh, say a job here, for example, another state in general, how do you, how do the state government work hand in hand to incentivize healthcare workers and healthcare providers to move to Mississippi? What are the things that are in place?
1: Well, One of the things that Mississippi has done are, a few years ago, and I can't remember the exact date that it happened, it's, it's been quite a while, but the Mississippi State Legislature did uh, allocate funds uh, through the University of Mississippi Medical Center, which is the only uh, teaching hospital, um, academic medical center in the state of Mississippi. So what they've done is create a program, the grow Physician um, Scholars Program, where they actually recruit um, individuals from, from the smallest Town, some small town throughout Mississippi, and they'll pay tuition for those students and, and in turn um, provide scholarships and funding and in turn, those students are required to practice. And I, can't, I can't remember the number of years, but they're required to practice uh, for a set number of years in the community in which they um, come from. And I, and I think that's going to be key going forward. Um, You know, once we can get some years and get individuals graduated out of medical school from these communities, I think that's one and I think one key area uh, that that our federal, not not federal, but our state government uh, has done to address uh, that issue of having healthcare workers. I think it's going to be very important also uh, to pull people from those communities to give them resources because they know the culture of that community. And just another thing that I wanted to mention too, not, not only physicians I think is gonna be key, but I think our governments, um, our communities, our state leaders have to embrace the concept of having community health workers that are used to kind of um, that kind of bridge the gap uh, between when that individual uh, comes to the doctor's office for the initial visit and goes back. So, and I think there's there's kind of been maybe some misconception about what community health workers and advocates do, but they are a very necessary um, a necessary component of that healthcare team. And currently in Mississippi, uh, we don't have a certified a certification process uh, for community health workers. So, you know, in addition to what the state is already doing, uh, what they also could do, I think, to make this more uh, uh, efficient, is to is to provide a certification process for community health workers to kind of serve uh, as that bridge, as that liaison between the patient and the healthcare provider. And, and, and what I mean by that liaison, for example, the healthcare provider may not understand the culture in which that individual comes from. So that individual who serves as that community health worker is a liaison in that they have the ability to communicate with the physician and also and, and then in turn, translate back to the patient what that individual, uh, what, the, what the physician is saying, and then vice versa, translate what the patient needs back to, back to the physician. So I think that's one thing that, that's missing um, in healthcare, for my opinion, that, that we really need to address, um, address healthcare when you look at um, the need for healthcare workers.
0: Which makes sense. So it's like you're hyper, you, gotta, you have to really look at hyper-localizing the solution. And part of, so yes. part of hyper-localizing the solution is to ensure that those in the community that understand the struggles of those patients, i.e. transportation, um, food desert, yes. um, that understand those social determinants of health that affects that community, embrace them, give them a, 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 a certification for them to be able to earn a living, right, to do the work. Yes. Because part of the process yes. is reimbursement, right? The patient- yes the provider the healthcare provider can get reimbursed for those services provided to the patients but what i'm hearing is in mississippi the community health care workers may not have that reimbursement capacity um, and that that is policy that should be changed because then that incentivizes that in individuals to be to want to work in the, health, in the community health care space, not for free, but to have at least an affordable living to take care of themselves and their family right. while really working as, as an advocate for the provider. Part of that, I'm really working as an this advocate one. is recruitment as well, right? They go out there in the community and recruit those patients. I um, mean, identify those patients and actually right. patients that, hey, it's okay to trust that provider. They're here for our best interest. Yes. They're just not here to use us, right? Because that's another thing that in, the, right. in our communities we really don't have we don't trust healthcare
1: providers for good reason correct right and, and, and I'll, right that, that's correct and one thing i wanted to add too is that and what that does it, it helps to empower that community um it helps that community to be empowered because you have individuals that you can relate to it could be your your fellow church member that, that's assisting you with helping to navigate through that health that health system. Um, it could be your brother, it could be your sister, but that helps to empower that community to think more in terms of of being healthy and well, not so much episodic care. But you know, I, I like to say we have a sick care system. You know, we, we only think about healthcare when individuals get sick. So it helps that person, that community to be more empowered, to be more proactive and also, and this kind of key goes back to your your question about you know Mississippi's past, our history of racism, uh, segregation, all those things. That helps to uh, build trust in communities. You know, I have uh, a lot of older family members that are still living now, and and for the most part, to listen at them talk, there's still a mistrust from um, uh, you know a mistrust of healthcare providers. You know, the issue with the Tuskegee uh, Airmen and the the, the you know, the, the, the simplest, the simplest thing uh, that happened, uh, you know, back then, you know, people still remember uh, that research study uh, that happened and, and, and they, you know, think that healthcare providers are there to to uh, experiment on this. So we have a job to do uh, with building trust in communities. And I think, like, you know, like you said, you know, localizing uh, health care also helps to, you know, helps, helps to improve that trust. That individuals and communities have with healthcare providers, which I think is also an issue that I failed to mention earlier.
0: Which, which is uh, a very important issue, that, and I think you had won recently in twenty thirteen um, an excellent uh, an award for excellence in health promotion. So part of mm-hmm. part of that really, and I and I love um, how we we've got a chance to meet. Is you posted something, um, and I also follow you on LinkedIn. You posted. Um, about your garden, right? Um, yes. And which is, uh, if you don't mind sharing, what made you begin gardening?
1: So it goes back to the history of my parents. Both of my parents grew up in the 50s and the 60s. And during those years, and, and actually before then, a lot of African Americans families were like sharecroppers. So after slavery, a lot of those individuals who were enslaved actually stayed on the plantation. What me and what I mean by sharecroppers? They helped to grow the crops, um, you know, for for that white um, plantation owner, and they t- quote unquote shared um, in the proceeds of the of, of the crop. You know, it really wasn't. It wasn't, and I'll it, it was not equal in the way the proceeds uh, were shared, but they did stay on those plantations to grow those crops. Both of my parents grew up uh, during that era where their parents uh, lived on, uh, you know, uh, someone else's property and helped with growing the crops. So they kept the, that tradition alive throughout my childhood of growing gardens. And so I learned how to grow a garden actually growing up as a child because we were required uh, to get out and grow our garden. So a few years ago, I, I, I kind of took a change in my uh, career, actually three years ago now. Uh, I was working from home for an insurance company. Um, I found myself having a lot of time um, you know, on my hands. So I would do a lot of, a lot of work um, in my backyard. And So one day a bright light came on and said, hey, you could be growing your own Crops. You got this space here. My mind went back to when I was a child. So I started out by raising um, kind of a raised garden. It started out um, just by two little four by four uh, areas, and then that kind of expanded. So I got about seven four by four areas um, in my backyard now. But it it all goes back to my childhood and and being required um, as a child um, to work um, in a garden. So I've kind of kept that passion alive. I've restarted that passion. Oh, into my into my adulthood
0: that's amazing that's amazing and that's a rich tradition itself and it goes to show that healthcare really starts at home it's the it's the food we consume right right it's the right, right. thing we input into our out into our mind so whether that is how do you cope with mental health because we're going through it right now um, if you're not yes you are if you're an african-american you're exposed to the news daily. And if it's not COVID-19 affecting us, it's it is police brutality. Right. And you go back to the South. The South has a history of that, um, especially their you, the policies around not passing Medicaid, making Medicaid more of an, a wide ex- expansion strategy, right? Because Medicaid allows for, poor um, for, for communities um, that, are, that can afford health, health coverage to be able to have access to health care. Mm-hmm. Um, but stipulations through Medicaid in the South haven't really allowed for that in some states. And why does that continue to persist? Especially in, in a time like this that we need mental health, right? We need health promotion in terms of food nutrition, food desert, right? growing a garden like you you have and it's great it's so great that you have that knowledge uh, what if someone else doesn't have that how do we ensure that expansion of strategy of medicaid becomes a norm in the south
1: I, th- I think for us i think i think what we have to do is to educate uh our policymakers. we need to educate our policymakers a, a bit more I think also, and at the same time, and I think what has not happened uh, for the most part, and I always say this in meetings when we're talking about Medicaid expansion and so forth, you know, our legislators, they look for, and they expect uh, people like our our various nursing associations, the various fraternities, sororities, all of these advocacy groups, they look for those groups to come each year. They'll do their spiel. They'll set up time down at the state capitol. They'll set up tables. They'll meet with health, with, um, with policy makers. But I think the thing that has not happened um, on a larger scale than I would like to see, I just don't think that we as, as healthcare leaders and healthcare providers have done enough of activating persons in those communities uh, to be more uh, socially uh, involved in a lot of these policies because when you look at it in the full scheme of things Mississippi is a state that is very connected socially and a lot of our life in Mississippi revolves around uh, our church our religion and also around sports so if we could get individuals in communities to be more vocal uh, to be more active um, at, you know at that level because you know you know a lot of these uh, well, most of them uh, legislators in Mississippi come become very small areas so if we can get that person that attends church with that health care provider or that individuals that's a part of the the same civic group uh, as that uh, health care provider as that as that legislator uh, having them also reinforce the message that a lot of our groups are doing I think we could make a bigger impact but I think we have to convince um, our legislators that it is going to be more beneficial to to, uh, to expand Medicaid than not. And, and how do we do that? You know, a lot of times legislators uh, speak in terms of, of economics. You know, if we can show them that it's going to impact our economy, I think we might be able to get more, to get more movement. And maybe not, you know, maybe some of them just have their mind already set that we're not going to expand Medicaid for this reason um, or that reason. Are, and, and I think what we have to do is, is do, our, do our due diligence in understanding how to best get that message over to um, to that policy maker. Because all these policy makers, there's probably a minority of them that actually understand healthcare. You know, you might have attorneys, you might have individuals who come from a business uh, background. How can we translate that message to where they can understand it and get the full picture and, and turn that bright light on in their head? Hey, it would benefit us better to, expand Medicaid than, than not. So, you know, I've, I've kind of you know, gone through a lot, but I, I think there's a lot of things that, that, that we should do um, in that area, but we, we, still, we still have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. There's a lot of work to do.
0: And, and I mean, it's so cri- 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 critical. What I'm hearing is ensure that ensure that people of power and influence yeah. be the voice that empower the community to go out there, vote one, um, mm-hmm. get the right people in place that will affect policy, that will affect policy change. Secondly, is to be able to identify that this is a long fight. Um, for Medicaid expansion, and Medicaid expansion itself really does increase access to care. Um, we we know this for econom- economically. We, we we see we see in when the Affordable Care Act was passed, 2.8 million um, African-American gain access to health, health coverage. Out of the 20 million that gain access to um, health coverage um, due to the Affordable Care Act, right? Mm-hmm. So provided that that is the case, economically it makes sense. If I, uh, by, on a singular person, if I am healthy, I can get up in the morning, I can go to work if, if I have employment. I can go to work because I'm ha- if I'm healthy, I can go to work and be a productive member of society and earn a living to pay for my healthcare costs. So my healthcare costs, as a, as a in return, actually decreases if if Medicaid expansion increases, right? And then of course employment comes into place too. Um, so really being able to explain those terms that economically, it does make sense when you increase the well-being of society. In Mississippi, nice. are a lot more happier, and they want to be a productive member of the society and go for employment. Uh, right. But you can tell them, "Hey, you can't afford healthcare." So we are not going to expand um, car coverage because you might abuse it. That's their 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 thought process, which is mm-hmm. really not true. Uh, because it's right. clear that it's a healthcare they need. It. Healthcare right. you need is not a want, right? It's truly right. need. Um, it's not like, okay, well, I, wanna, I just want to go see my doctor. Right. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I want to go see my doctor. It's like, I need to go see my doctor. But we want to get into a habit, what I'm hearing as well from you, is we want to get into a, that habit of preventive care. I oh, want yeah. to be with yes. my doctor, right?
1: Yes, um, and that actually saves millions of dollars. You know, I, you know, I always like to make the analogy that it, it's more cost-effective to prevent diabetes than it is to treat kidney dialysis and amputations that mm-hmm. are at stroke, that are a direct impact of diabetes. And, and we have to find a better way of, of getting that message over. And I know that there's groups, groups out there that you know, they might listen to this and say, well, we're doing this. You know, but I, I do think for the most part, we have some groups that are doing it, that,
2: mm-hmm. are,
1: uh, you know, that are getting that message over. Mm-hmm. But we have, I think we have to empower those folks at the grassroots level in those communities, get them involved as well, to help us to carry that message.
0: So how do we scale the efforts of those individuals, right? One, one is tra- we have a transportation issue. We have um, lack of access to, to health care providers, quality healthcare care providers. Um, but the few that take the, take the opportunity and the challenge to go and move to, to Mississippi, I think there was a doctor out there, right, that took the challenge to go to Mississippi and, and care for... Um, um, of, um, for patients who have lost their limb as, re, as a result of um, um, diabetes. They've mm-hmm. taken this challenge, but what I read and I think what you shared with us is that some, some specialties don't get the, more of the subsidies right, that are given to like, a family care provider. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we ensure that, we, how do we scale? scale the, the, the work of those individuals, right? Um, that are actually taking up this challenge.
1: I think I think there has to be a vested interest in that community or a vested interest in um, coming to a state like Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the, the purposes of our state putting into place that rural health, uh, the Rural physician Scholar Program, mm-hmm. to where we can actually pull folks from those communities who know that community and and who who we feel like would be interested in going back to that community. So I think think to address that issue, also getting specialists um, uh, accessible to those communities, I feel like we have to grow uh, those specialists, also those primary care providers up in those communities and pull from that community and then educate those individuals and send them back and, and you know, with the hopes that that individual will be there, um, will be there long term, because they have a best interest. They know that community. They know the culture of that community. They are of that community.
0: So, so how do we use technology to scale the individual's efforts? Because clearly, say, said the the provider may come in, they may not want to move, or they, or they just want to come come to that through Mississippi, Mississippi, three or four four days a week to provide care. How do we scale that effort using technology?
1: I think I think I think it's going to become necessary now with, with everything happening with COVID-19 and social distancing. Mm-hmm. Healthcare will never be the same. And I think the first thing that has to occur in communities, since Mississippi has a very rural community, very poor community, we have to change the mindsets of those patients or individuals who are living in communities. Change that mindset. What I mean is to be more acceptable of getting their care via telemedicine or via um, through the use of technology. It's okay, it's, you know, Mississippi, uh, University Medical Center is at the forefront of telemedicine um, in the state of Mississippi. That's all fine and well. But if the community is not accepting of it, it's, it's you know, it's it's gonna be of, of no benefit at all. So I think the very first step that we need to do is to get people in communities um, uh, re- more relaxed, get them to be more acceptable of getting their care through, through telemedicine, because it, it, is, an, it is necessary. And, and that's another way of, of getting specialists into uh, some of those rural areas. In addition to growing up uh, healthcare providers in those communities, we have to make technology uh, acceptable there. But I think the very first step is to getting that community to buy into that, um, that, that use of technology. And I think what that's gonna take, it's gonna take religious leaders because as I stated, Mississippi is, is very, we're, we're centered around church, we're centered around things like sports, we're centered around other social activities. Those religious leaders, uh, those local elected officials, uh, folk like myself who are from a very small town, or I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a healthcare provider. So we've got to be preaching that message of, of the use of technology. To get individuals more acceptable, and I think also funding too um, is, is very important. Uh, we have to ensure that um, our states Medicaid uh, that we have Medicare, the insurance companies are actually um, reimbursing uh, for for telemedicine or, or telehealth services uh, to have healthcare delivered to these communities via via technology. So there's a there's a number of things that we that we have to do um you know in, in that regard
0: which makes sense so reimbursement is, is is a key 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 components i think we're talking about making sure that a community health health health, health workers have a certification so they can they can get reimbursed right we've mm-hmm. talked about reimbursement in person for healthcare providers which makes sense right they provide a service they get reimbursed for that service right now it's really a push towards certain states as well to get Full reimbursement for in-person visit as as say the same as um um as virtual visit. Um, some states are pushing towards that. some states. Are, some states have actually have implemented that that hey the mm-hmm. same the same cost um, that you will get re- reimbursed for an in-person visit is the same as a, um, a virtual visit because you're providing that care. But one thing that comes to mind too is using the, those community health workers as health coaches, for example, right? Yes. We're able to provide our care virtually, check in, right? You can check in virtually with the with with the patients and say, hey, mm-hmm. you're taking your medication. Uh, you can you can use those not- notifications to tell the patients, hey, this is the amount of medications that you need to take mm-hmm. um, to be able to get the proper care, right? And mm-hmm. then, then use them as, said, as accountability, check in, check in, regular checking with them. Where are you with your food? Um, you were talking about, you discussed about, the difference between um, a vegetable and and, and a starch, right? Um, right? Why that is important. But using right. individuals like that as health coaches that allows the that allows the process to be scaled. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how, how do we simplify that process? I know we are at Enofears that's our mission. That's what we right. do, right? right. Um, but it's like how do we ensure that the adoption?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's
0: key that you mentioned, right? How do mm-hmm. we ensure the adoption is is um, received by the by um, the community?
1: Right. Right. Right, and and one thing I did mention, and you and you hit on it. Um, I also think that community health workers—it's going to be a system. There has to be a whole system uh, created with different um, uh, I- individuals from various disciplines taking part in that system. It has to be a multidisciplinary approach. So that community health worker is going to be key to assisting that person that's sitting in that very rural area that's out in the woods somewhere to to navigate that 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 healthcare system of. Of the use of technology, telemedicine. It could be just a, the, a simple fact of that community health worker taking, um, you know, my given that the, the bandwidth is there, and the community infrastructure is there. And that's another thing. I think the infrastructure has to be built up to 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 be able to support um, the use of technology. You know, there areas in Mississippi that don't have really good internet. Um, don't have good really good internet services. That, that's another area I think we have to to be mindful of as well. The the, the environment, of the communities have, be, have to be built. Uh, infrastructure to support that but it could be a situation where the person can take an iPad or an iPhone because all the iPads and iPhones have cameras on they can do some wonderful things could be something like that where that community health worker takes it to that person in the community so in in essence you're taking that specialist to uh, that person's home or it could be that local community health center or or federally qualified health centers I mentioned having uh, a a TV monitor or a tablet or something there to, to beam that person to Jackson, Mississippi, which may be three hours away uh, from any community on any given day. So I wanted, I wanted to mention that as well, that having that liaison there and, that, and, that, and it working as a system mm-hmm. to ensure that healthcare is delivered to even the most rural areas. It makes complete sense. So
0: um, in, here in DC, there's a, there's a clinic that we deliver a solution to, and mm-hmm. they provide they, they, they're, it's their, multi, their multidisciplinary clinic. Um, they have about five clinics in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area. And truly they, they, they have a, uh, a, a, mental health, a mental health component to their clinic, a family physician, and have all these different subspecialists in, in that clinic. Similar to a mini kind permanente one-stop-shop kind of um, environment. And then we utilize our technology as a one-stop shop to be able right. to tell these individuals that are in-person, virtual. Well. Right? Um, Again, it takes it, it, it was an, it's an ongoing effort by, by, this, by this clinic. And the same soundness don't need to happen in Mississippi as well. That it is not just a one-time thing. Let's wash your hand, hand clean, we bought you, we brought you uh, uh, a technology that may actually solve, solve the issue, but the technology is not as important as the people buying in and utilizing it. Right. As a scale to really meet people at their need. Um, so that's this is a, this is a, this is a critical thing. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you, too, to li- live with this is, if you must have a billboard, what will, what will be the take-home message?
1: For me, I'm all about empowering communities. And so my billboard probably say something, uh, you know, to the effect of take charge of your own health care. Allow me to help. Mm-hmm. Because I think until we get individuals to adopt uh, chronic disease self-management, empower individuals to take care of themselves while they're at home, we're, we're going to continue to see this, this cycle of, of, of chronic disease illness um, in a state like Mississippi and nationwide. We have to empower individuals to take care of, of themselves, but we have to ensure that those individuals have, have the resources Uh, to do so. And I think a lot of times in in very poor, underserved communities, they don't have the resources. And I think the very first resource is to ensure that that person has the knowledge, has the health literacy to make that first step, uh, towards being, towards being healthy.
0: Makes sense. So take away, be accountable for your own health, ensure that individuals have the resources, healthcare providers, access to health technology and, making sure that it's a multidisciplinary approach to be able to increase access to care. It's not just one person. It takes a team effort to care for that individual. Um, Those are the key components of the takeaway. So we thank you for being on the call with us today, um, Dr. Jones. And this has been a really enlightening um, conversation because I think... You have to peel the layers when you have this conversation and it seems as though there's a lot that goes on in the South beyond just let's come and fix the problem. You need to really understand the local,
1: local issues. So thank you for sharing what's happening. in am in Mississippi. You're quite welcome. And thank you for the invite to take part in this interview.
2: Our state of well-being decides our rate of productivity. This is why the health of your employees are important to you, like that of an athlete is important to the coach. Even though the access to healthcare is sometimes unaffordable and time-consuming for most people, Marie still cares about her employees' well-being, so she signs everyone up on in-off Cares. Innove Cares is a telehealth and wellness platform that brings affordable healthcare services to people wherever they are. Marie's employees do not need to wait in line to book an appointment with a doctor. All they have to do is grab their phone and get connected to a doctor or any healthcare provider at just a few clicks. They have access to health specialists at the very best price and get the very best lifestyle tips to avoid chronic diseases. Matt, on the other hand, is a soccer coach and has all his players signed up on InOvCares. Apart from getting the best healthy lifestyle tips, they get connected to the right healthcare provider in case they get an injury and the recovery process is being followed up. Get rewards, join the health tribe, connect health devices, tick your action list and spend more time with a healthcare team with InOvCares. Download your InOvCares app on Google Play Store or Apple Store now.